Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. The Slate Political Gab Fest is brought to you by Harry's, the shaving company that offers German-engineered blades, well-designed handles, and shipping right to your door. Visit harrys.com for $5 off your first purchase with the promo code GABFEST. And by ZipRecruiter. With ZipRecruiter, you can post your job to more than 100 job sites with a single click and an interface that's easy to use. And right now, you can try it for free. Go to ZipRecruiter.com GabFest. And by Score Big. Did you know that 40% of all live event tickets go unsold? Score Big works directly with your favorite teams and artists to get those unsold seats at huge savings. Go to scorebig.com right now, click on the microphone, and enter the promo code GABFEST. You'll save an extra $20 off your first ticket purchase. That's scorebig.com, promo code GABFEST. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest for March 31st, 2016, the Corey's Gory Story Edition. I'm David Plotz of Atlas Obscura, the quizzical, puzzled person across from me, running some poetry calculations in his head is John Dickerson of Face the Nation. Hello, John. Hi. I was. I, it took me a little while to catch up with that. From New Haven is Emily Vazlon of the New York Times Magazine. Hello, Emily. Hello, hello. I also figured out your play on language good 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 we have minimum right. sentient capabilities uh, 100%, here percent we have 100 yes, right. acquisition next we're hoping to stop the drooling <clears throat> on this week's GabFest, we'll have our usual trump segment this week this week in trump outrage the battering campaign manager and the did trump really say that about abortion portion of the show then is bernie sanders a real threat to hillary clinton again is the nomination the democratic nomination up for grabs then President Obama plays media critic. Plus, we will have cocktail chatter. And in Slate Plus, we are going to shamelessly rip off the Culture Fest Slate Plus segment of a couple of weeks ago. Who in the world of politics should be on a new Mount Rushmore? If you are not yet a Slate Plus member, you can get it by going to slate.com slash GabFest Plus. Don't forget, don't forget Atlantans and people in the great state of Georgia. We are coming to... Atlanta. Well, neighboring states can come too. Neighboring states, although Atlanta is so centrally located, it must be pretty hard. Don't sort discourage of... them. I'm not discouraging. I'm just. It's four hours from Knoxville, I think. For yeah. example, can you just say car. Knoxville some more? I love it when you say Knoxville. Um, no. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. We'll be doing a live show in Atlanta on Wednesday, April 27th. That's just four weeks away. Wednesday, April 27th at 7.30 p.m. at the First Center for the Arts. We are very excited to do our first live show in the in the Deep South, that do, not counting Austin. Visit Slate.com slash live for more information and uh, on our show and other live shows. There's, a, there's also a live Hang Up and Listen in Washington, D.C. and a live Culture Fest in New York that you should check out. So if you're, you're hankering for a Slate podcast live but can't get to Atlanta, we've got great options in Washington and New York in April. Trump, Trump, Trump. Trump, Trumpity Trump. 
Trump, 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 Trump. This week, Donald Trump's campaign manager, Corey Lewandowski, is charged with battery after a new videotape surfaces contradicting his and Trump's lies about whether he grabbed a reporter trying to ask Trump a question. Trump also uh, told Chris Matthews and an audience that women should be punished if abortion is outlawed and they get an abortion, then backtracked very quickly and attempted to cover himself. There's also growing concern about his down-ballot impact on House and Senate candidates. So, Emily, the Lewandowski furor, which erupted, Corey Lewandowski is Trump's campaign manager. He's basically, as far as I can tell, the Trump grand presidential campaign consists of three people, Donald Trump, Corey Lewandowski, and Hope Hicks, the spokes. Person like that's the entire apparatus. So he's one third they of the do Trump seem campaign. To be the brain trust. Mm-hmm. So what 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 happened this week? I mean, I think we've all followed it, but just summarize. A Breitbart reporter named Michelle Fields was at a Trump event, tried to ask Trump a question, and Landowski stepped in, grabbed her arm, kind of jerked her clothing, pulled her away from Trump. She reported that this happened at the time. She tweeted a picture of bruises on her arm. A Washington Post reporter backed up her story, and she went to the police and um, reported this as battery. The Trump campaign, Lewandowski and Trump, went to great, great lengths to deny that this had happened. They called uh, this reporter, Michelle Fields, delusional. They said that there was nothing like this. Um, He had never touched her. And then video of the incident, which takes all of four seconds, emerged corroborating Michelle Fields' story. At which point Trump said, look at the video as if that was still proof that this hadn't happened. So I guess I have a few reactions. One is my fear that people who support Donald Trump won't care about this and they will see it as yet more one more example of like a media gotcha campaign against Trump. Another reaction I had was just the um, undermining of this woman's account. I mean, we're talking about a reporter from a really conservative media outlet. Breitbart itself kind of had a big internal uproar. Uh, and Michelle Fields resigned because she her, her own boss um, questioned her account publicly. So there's that old, ugly idea that women lie that's here. And then the third amazing part of this is to just watch... Lewandowski and Trump, Lewandowski and Trump say that something didn't happen when we can all see see that it did on this video. I just, it's kind of amazing as a set of facts. And yet it seems completely of a piece with everything we've been seeing in this campaign so far. John, have we learned anything about Donald Trump or the Trump campaign from this episode that we didn't know already? The the part that interests me the most is the, um, and just to rewind for just a second on the fact questions, What's different is that there were some there was some video that both sides said proved their case that it came out earlier. Some iPhone video that was sort of some people said, oh, that's totally conclusive. It happened. Other people said it didn't happen. What's new is that when he was uh, when the files, when the charges were filed, they had CCTV cameras from Mar-a-Lago, which is new footage that nobody had seen before. And it's clear as day that that Lewandowski grabbed her. Trump is saying, well, you know, her account was that he pulled her down. She nearly fell. It's clearly not that um, it's not as aggressive as as described. But the but the crucial fact to keep the eye on the ball here is that Lewandowski said he never touched her. He never met her. 
and that then Trump said she made the whole story up. So that to me is the part that is interesting in what we know because this is a management question. You know, this is a guy who works for him who didn't tell the truth. And so now what's the consequence of that? There is no consequence. While this is not a federal case, this is not the most important thing in the history of the world, it does show instincts of the operation in a way that we've not seen before. We've not seen a kind of personnel thing. We've seen, obviously, lots of situations in which Trump has said things are are one way right. and they're not that way. Right. So the new the new thing is not the line, which we've seen before. It's the it's the unwillingness to manage your people in a way that other people think would make sense. Right. The Trump defense would be loyalty. I stand by my people, and that's a form of that's my management style. Yeah. Even though I don't think it loyalty that's not much no of matter defense. what. Yeah. Loyalty. Loyalty. Well, not, despite not logic, no, and, not no matter what, but loyalty where lots of other people would think, yeah, loyalty, fine, but you're not supposed to do this. It's the denial. It's the loyalty to the point of denying reality and scurriously attacking a woman's reputation by calling her a liar in a way that's familiar and really creepy. Yeah. Right, right. I would right. also that's say a, that's a good yeah. second point, which is loyalty is one thing, but they also went on the offense. You know, I'm not going to play up the comparisons to totalitarian dictatorships and and. But that, but again, why not? But again, this is exactly <laughs> what dictatorial governments and fascist leaders do: is they they deny reality, they contend a completely false reality, even when presented with facts, they continue to deny it, or then just change their story and pretend there was no pretend they. It's the same thing they've been saying all along. It's a kind of behavior we really have not seen in American politics ever that I can remember. Are you going to believe me, or your lying eyes? Yeah. Emily, I have a legal question, though. There's no doubt this is a totally shameful episode, like, for all concerned except Michelle Fields. Um, I don't really understand why this is a, a prosecution that requires the full armature of the Florida judicial system. I mean, he grabbed her. He definitely well, grabbed her. Like, it was shouldn't so do that. It's, is battery a felony? I mean, could he, could he go to jail for this? No. I mean, battery is a misdemeanor in a circumstance like this. Technically speaking, battery is me touching you when you don't want to be touched in a way that it's just that's all it takes. And the video evidence of this, the fact that she had bruises, the fact that he manhandled her, and I'm sure from the police point of view, the fact that he was bald-faced lying that this hadn't happened when they had the video evidence... That seems like a valid misdemeanor charge to me. And, you know, then you go to you get fined. You have some kind of, you know, minimal punishment. But I'm OK with that. Do you uh, in watching the video, do you think the bruises are consistent with what you saw on the video? I can't see from the video how the pressure he was exerting. I cannot. I, I mean, look, I give this person the benefit of the doubt. Yeah. The notion that she already had bruises on her arm in exactly the spot where she would have had them, like, it, it makes more sense to me if there was an actual injury. And I just see zero reason to doubt this woman's account and a lot of reason to doubt Corey Lewandowski. Yeah, I, I mean, yeah, I mean... Who knows? I, who knows? I mean, she's John. You, you. There's skepticism in your eyes. She's been telling the same story essentially from minute one. Well, and, the original story was sounded a lot more violent than the than the than the video looked. You, you do. Do you dispute that? The original story sound, but it didn't have materially different 
facts. Look, and, and also, you you do have to discount for lived experience, like the fact of somebody grabbing you. But that she then immediately presented these bruises and like presented us this as a story to me speaks more to her credibility. Like, I, why would she present I don't even bruises? Know it's, I don't even know what? if it's a useful road to go down. I uh, The clear point here, not to be mistaken by any, is that Lewandowski said it didn't happen at all. It happened. That's the big... Everything else is quite secondary. I was just curious whether... I mean, based on what I had read, I was expecting the footage to show, like, a melee, and it... And it wasn't one, so whatever. That, I'm just saying that was my expectation. Lots, everyone would have known, that and there would my... never have been ambiguity about whether it happened. But I, right, but anyway, that was my expectation. I wondered if you had the same reaction and expectation. It's not. I'm not. I'm not trying to say that she obviously she described something that was a heck of a lot closer to what actually happened than the person who said it didn't happen. At all right, all. let's move slightly off of this. I this is um, this is me. I, I'm the world's worst prognosticator. I don't know anything. I, as I just sniff the world, that's me <laughs> sniffing. It just smells to me like the Trump things are turning on him. Is there any evidence well, that this is the case? And and is it too well, late? Was, of course, we're all thinking about that and trying to imagine that scenario. And I guess what I keep coming to the I the people who are supporting Donald Trump, why would they care about any of the things that are happening? Um, I actually think that the the country is kind of get it's a combination of disgust and boredom that mm. that the that, that like we've overdosed on him the novelty has really worn off and i think that's happening even for people who support him as well but maybe What's i'm wrong for this? i don't i don't the evidence is is that was me didn't you sniff, hear me sniffing you're <laughs> sniffing the world okay i i see no evidence for your thesis john's well, about to well, they, can you supply they, some evidence please, well john? the the evidence would be the marquette university poll that has trump down by 10 points to um ted cruz in wisconsin so that would be that would be That's one place good. i think the what's happened this week and that the the lewandowski matter was a part of is going back to emily's original point was this is, it wasn't just that there was a an account from trump and lewandowski that was totally and completely at odds with the facts but that then they went on and and attacked the character of the reporter um that's important because when you're caught not telling the truth usually you back you know you climb down um to then go on and say you know michelle fields made up the story and to take inconsistencies that they saw in the story and try and use that to kind of distract from the underlying problem for them was was a mistake that fed into an existing problem which is that there is a a view both in terms of trump's back and forth with megan kelly of fox news that like he just can't let it go when it comes to women and that matters for two reasons one to his campaign because his um, favorability rating among women is negative 44 he's got a 44 point deficit <laughs> now to give you some historical perspective at this point in the 2012 race mitt romney had a negative 14 deficit republican candidates have traditionally had a problem with women voters but 44 is a huge problem uh, compared to 14 that's not going to get any better when you're having uh, debates of the kind that, that surrounded the Michelle Fields event and the Megyn Kelly and now on this question of abortion where even most pro-life people would have actually been working to try to get away from the notion that you want to punish the mother. Right. Actually, let, yeah, let's go to that. Let's please talk about that. So Trump, when speaking with Chris Matthews of MSNBC for a, well, it was like a 
There's a town hall. Matthews pressed him on abortion. <laughs> Trump, who's clearly has not given this very much thought, circled around the idea and then concluded that women who get abortions after abortion is outlawed in the Trump administration should be punished. As soon as this town hall was over, I think that he, he and his people realized, oh, drat, we've made a terrible mistake. And they they sort of tried to walk it back. He hadn't even like read up enough about pro-life politics to know what the <laughs> what the usual dodge is there, which is what, Emily? What's the dodge? Oh, yeah. The dodge is a dodge. It's a position. Sorry. If it's illegal, no, if, it's it's illegal if it's illegal, you punish the doctors. Right. But I mean, I would say the dodge is fair because what we're talking about here is the third rail of uh, opposing abortion. People who oppose abortion do not want to get into a fight with women. That's been a long, like decades old problem for them. They want to both be defending the unborn child and also standing with women. And so the reason I think it's a dodge is that if you really think abortion is murder, then saying that people who murder their babies um, should go to should be punished seems completely logical. Right. But it's a big problem. So instead, the rhetorical move is to say that you punish the abortion providers and that the women, just like their unborn fetuses, are victims, which, of course, is like the most paternalistic right, possible reading of abortion. To be fair, there are places on the pro-choice spectrum where people also, you know, get into rhetorical difficulties with the logical endpoint of their position. But this one in particular is a real, you know, ongoing Achilles heel for um, the pro-life movement. And that's why there was just such a complete rejection of Trump as soon as these words came out of his mouth. This is like the thing you are absolutely never supposed to in, say. In countries where abortion is very illegal, Emily, what are the legal punishments? Are they for providers? Are they for women getting abortions? For both? Oh, they're for both. I mean, they in there are countries in which people go to prison for having abortions. What's his recovery mechanism here, John? Does he need one? Well, the recovery mechanism was to, to go to the traditional position, which is the, to issue that press release and say, it's not about punishing the mothers, it'd be about punishing the providers. Also, I should note that in his answer, he seemed to sort of suggest that if it were illegal, it wasn't that he suggested it, it was a favorable outcome, but he was basically acknowledging and then kind of not acknowledging the fact that women would have to go to unlicensed abortion providers. And yes. did he mention alleys? I mean, I think... He didn't say it, but he said back like they used to be, yeah. you know, in this way that, yes, totally evoked the image of, you know, back alley abortions. And in fact, he's right about that, too. Right. Again, this is something you're never supposed to say out loud. So that was also um, on the politics of this. I, I think the I mean, one of the underlying things is you Trump has been criticized for just kind of winging it on policy ideas. And this is a version of what happened to Dan Quayle when he was asked about if his daughter wanted to get an abortion. And John McCain was asked a version of the same thing. And in their responses, they didn't show a facility with the topic that made everybody think that they're just arriving at these views for the first time. And this just showed that he was just kind of he's winging it. And it's not just winging it on abortion, but other issues. So there's that, you know, there's that problem, too. He's just incredibly unpredictable. And it's one thing for his brand to take a hit when he says something that's controversial and that appears to offend both pro life groups and abortion rights groups. But when he's the Republican nominee, it means all other Republican candidates have to figure out how to handle this because they're going to be asked about it. And the party itself has to figure out how to handle this because they're going to be asked about it. It means basically from June all the way through to November, every day will be another opportunity for 
you know, possible huge fire drills to try and deal with these issues. Okay, let's leave Donald Trump right there. I'm sure he'll be available next week when we want to return to him. Now let's hear from our first sponsor this week, which is harrys.com. It is almost time to hang up your winter coat and change over to a look that will keep you cool. Why not start with your face by getting a clean shave with a Harry's razor? Hey, you know what? I just did that. As many of you know, I'm I'm a have been a bearded person for the past couple of years, but uh, as part of a spring cleaning and to help with my kids' school auction, I I shaved my beard off, um, and it was great. And I'm been clean shaven for a couple of weeks. I'm probably going to grow my beard back, but my Harry's razor is going to keep trimming it. But it was so nice to shave my beard off and to run free and have my clean, smooth face out in the world. And that was thanks to my wonderful Harry's razor. As you know, if you're a GabFest listener, that I've been using Harry's for a couple of years, and I really love it. And it's been my trusty, my Harry's razor and uh, Harry's shave cream have been trusty companions as I've trimmed around my beard. And now that I've gone beardless, my Harry's razor did a manfully excellent job in giving me a clean shave. So... Why would you pay $32 for an 8-pack of blades when you could get them for half the price at harrys.com? For just $15, you can get Harry's starter set, which includes a razor, moisturizing shave cream, and three razor blades. Harry's gives you factory direct prices. They cut out the middleman and ship their products right to your door. And right now, Harry's will give you $5 off your first order with promo code GABFEST. Go to harrys.com right now. That's H-A-R-R-Y-S.com. Enter code GABFEST at checkout. Bernie Sanders has been crushing it recently. He has won Western primaries and caucuses by enormous margins. His fundraising is going out full throttle. Some pollsters assert that since March 1st, he has essentially tied with Hillary Clinton in popular support. And that, and then some say he actually has a reasonable shot of catching up with her, especially if he can peel away some of the, the superdelegates who our Hillary supporters. John, what's the Sanders is in great shape case and what's the cold water on that case? The best Sanders case is that he does really, really well, not just in Wisconsin, uh, but in Pennsylvania, in New York, in California, that he does better than he has been doing broadly, more broadly, that he basically pulls off of Michigan. Remember how Michigan was a big uh, surprise for him in these other states that otherwise would be very strong for Hillary Clinton, and that he shrinks the regular delegate lead, which she's got. And then because he's able to, because he would go in with that kind of momentum, having grabbed bigger victories, not all victories are alike, of course, right? So a big victory of the kind he had in Washington, Hawaii, and Alaska in New York would be extraordinary because it's a diverse, a more diverse population. It's her home state. It would mean lots of delegates. And so presumably if he had those kinds of wins, then he could go to the go to the convention and convince the superdelegates that had already supported Hillary Clinton to jump over to him, which would be kind of an extraordinary thing because usually the, the people who support Sanders or come from that wing of the party find the whole notion of superdelegates sort of unfair and that these are the elites of the party. So to be banking on – and when Hillary Clinton had a lead that they thought was purely uh, from superdelegates – they thought it was kind of unfair that she was going to win because she had all these superdelegates in her pocket. So now for Sanders' strategy to be based on, on superdelegates represents an evolution of position. The cold water on this oh, is, the cold water, is yeah. 
that there are, that he does very well in open caucuses and primaries. There are very few of those left. And to get a majority, and, he needs about fifty six non-white voters. Yeah, I mean that he needs um, non-white voters. That he needs he would need to break into older voters. That he would need to get fifty six percent of the remaining delegates. And that's just not the average operating percentage he's been getting. He gets close to seventy percent, I think, in in the one in the ca- little caucuses that he won. But that's um, you know th- that's not the rest of the remaining contests. So the idea would be that it's it would be very hard for him to get the fifty six percent which would give him a majority among the remaining pledge delegates. And then, that, so that's A, the hard thing. Second hard thing is convincing those superdelegates who like Hillary Clinton, not just because they're like winging it. They think she has the experience for the job. They think she really could handle the problems of the world. There are some portion of them who might be just transactional and might break off. But a wholesale departure uh, from Hillary Clinton would be a hard thing to pull off for him. Emily, as you look at the race since again there are these people who say since march 1st this has really changed sanders is really really has the momentum hillary's campaign is in no sense caught fire is there anything that she is doing or can do that can not just win her the nomination which she'll probably win but but actually get voters interested in her it's so tough right i don't think she's doing anything wrong when you read the statements she's making and her taking on trump and various positions she's taking it all seems fine and yet she just can't seem to get people really fired up and i honestly think that he is just the wrong opponent for her because the energy on the left right now is you know more feisty and more revolutionary or at least like faux revolutionary than she will ever be and the pragmatic case for someone who could actually get things done in government and knows gazillion things about policy, et cetera. It's just not um, grabbing the base. And so I think what she needs is a Republican opponent. She needs to just like slog through this, make friends with Sanders as much as possible, choose some exciting vice presidential candidate and like push the reset button. Yeah, she'll benefit from whoever the the Democratic, uh, the Republican nominee is. And she does. She has about two million more votes than he does. I mean, so she may not be thrilling people. But by the time this is over, and just to add to your cold water case, David, that if you look at the closed contests that are left, New York, Pennsylvania, Maryland, Connecticut, you know, New Mexico, Delaware, they Kentucky, Oregon, uh, those are all closed. She does better in those than he does. Now, Wisconsin, California are open or semi-open, so those would be potentially better for him. But there are just more contests of the kind that she wins coming up than there are of the kind that he wins. Uh, The important thing about that is not simply that it will be hard for him to beat her in those states, but it will also be hard for him to beat her by such a margin that he wouldn't require to overcome the deficit he's already got in in delegates. Are we seeing with the success of Sanders on the left what we have witnessed on the right over the past 25 years? Are the Democrats going to become like the Republicans where there's an ideological purity required to be to be a candidate on the left in the way there has become on the right and that it will be very hard to to maintain a position as a centrist democrat and seems to me like a a recipe for for truly catastrophic possible showdown in 
What do you mean? Then Mayor Bloomberg will come in and rescue well, the country. Well, you know, then there, there is this coalition. There's this coalition dream. of there's this coalition of people like me who sit in the middle who who don't even like I'm like pretty far to the left, I guess, on that policy. But I but in terms of politics, I sit in the middle. I just basically believe in politics. I believe like oh, okay, let's compromise. I'll give you this. You give me that. That as you get ideological purity, that m- space for compromise vanishes. And the Democrats have continued to sort of occupy it. And Obama had tried, you know, and a few Republicans, you know, John John Boehner being one of them, tried to to work with the Democrats. But that as the parties move further and further apart, that space becomes empty, it becomes a void. And it, are we are the Democrats going that way? Does Sanders represent that or not? Or is he just, uh, you know, an exciting left wing candidate? He represents a larger. So one of the things to try and figure out is is how big how big what Sanders represents is because you have to kind of take away the question we were just wrestling with, which is how much of this is a problem with Hillary Clinton. The people want to be excited. They're sick of not being excited. They're constantly let down by the promises of their politicians. And so Bernie Sanders represents a kind of opposite of all of that. If she were a different candidate, would he be getting the same kind of enthusiasm to figure out what the baseline level of this feeling is? So let's say he doesn't win. Um, let's say it's, you know, Reagan 76, that, that the conservatives, in this case, the, the, the liberals, are disappointed by the ultimate nominee, what do, around what does the movement continue to rally? Uh, is it the income inequality, the relationship with Wall Street? What for them is, for conservatives, what was the communists and the size of government? Is that animating force sufficient to keep the movement going? And that would be, I think, one of the necessary preconditions for what you're talking about, because for what you're talking about would essentially be Sanders loses and and then there's a real then there's a, a basically you know 1980 that the Sanders equivalent because he's not going to run again and probably in 2020 that that Elizabeth Warren comes forward and and it's not just the cult of personality around Elizabeth Warren it's that there's a big movement behind her which crosses parties I mean Reagan uh, it's important to know that he pulled, you know, a lot of people in from the other party as it was designed in the, you know, some of them were Wallace voters, pulled Democrats into his candidacy. Is there somebody and are there a set of ideas that are attractive? And I don't know whether that it doesn't. It's hard because one is you're looking at it in the rearview mirror and one. And Reagan, you with, with Reagan, you did have this person who could embody it. And maybe it's Warren, but Warren's going to be very uh, old in 2022. Uh, you also had a person going back and looking at Reagan's um, convention speech in 1976, which is supposed to be this great moment where he captured the heart of the entire Republican Party, even though he was a defeated candidate. He's not talking about ideology. He's talking about America. And he basically has found a way to tell a bruised and beaten party here's how we can speak about things that make us excited about politics in America and make us feel like we're we have a fighting chance and that after Watergate and after the de- depressing early 70s that we can rise again as a country none of that had to do with ideology he was just a, a good politician and so you'd need in 2020 you'd need two things you'd need the animating ideology and then you'd need the candidate who can really give that uh, a, a serious voice, even more so than uh, probably even Bernie Sanders has. I mean, isn't part of the answer to this that we don't know who that person is because Hillary Clinton has been so dominant and there was this miscalculation that she was going to, that she had the nomination locked up, which meant that Warren stayed out and Sanders was her only really viable opponent and that all the people 
you know, under the age of 60 or 55 are sitting on the bench, like they're sitting on their hands. We don't even exactly know who that bench is, or at least, you know, you could come up with like five or 10 perspective people you think are sitting on it, but they all feel really untested. Um, and then I think also in addition to income quality are these questions about race discrimination and police abuse and whether the Democratic Party in its leadership is going to look like America. I mean, Ted Cruz was right at some debate recently when he said that it was actually the Republican Party candidates who had, you know, gender and ethnic diversity. Yeah. So, John, is Sanders going to win Wisconsin? Is he is he? He could. Likely. Yeah, he could. The question is whether it will be a big, big win, lots and lots of delegates or, or a, an emotional win. Any a wins a win. But does he not really get that much in terms of the actual delegate? And again, actual delegate as opposed to super delegate. Right. Does he does he shorten that up? I mean, but the big the big noise, the big money, the big thing is going to be what happens to the Republicans, because if Donald Trump um, I mean, what he one of the th- reasons you may feel that he is potentially losing altitude in addition to all of the things that have kind of surrounded his campaign this week is uh, he hasn't had a win because of just the calendar uh, since Arizona. So if Sanders wins Wisconsin, I know that the primary turns on the delegate count and the superdelegates. But in terms of thinking about the general election, how worried should the Democrats be about these crucial Midwestern states that Clinton has trouble in? Not. I mean, there's more there was more animus between Clinton and Obama in 08 than there is between Sanders and Clinton in terms of people staying home and not, right. not going out to vote, right. and at the least con- right now. And the, and whoever, I mean, if it's Cruz or Trump, I mean, unless it's Paul Ryan in Wisconsin, but if it's Cruz or Trump that, that she's running against, I mean, people are going to come out to vote. To assume if you're wouldn't. a Sanders voter and you care about these issues deeply enough to support Sanders, it would seem to me that you, as a Sanders voter, you wouldn't you wouldn't think, oh, you know, suddenly I don't really care about these issues that much again. I, I guess I'm just going to blow it off. All right. Okay. And now let's hear from our next sponsor this week, which is ZipRecruiter. As the CEO of a company, I know firsthand how important hiring is. You need the best candidates to ensure you're adding the right people to your team. This is where ZipRecruiter comes in. With ZipRecruiter.com, you can post your job to over 100 job sites, including social media networks like Facebook and Twitter, all with a single click. You can find candidates in any city or industry nationwide. Just post once and watch your qualified candidates roll into ZipRecruiter's easy-to-use interface. No juggling emails or calls to your office. You can quickly screen candidates and hire the right person fast. Find out today why ZipRecruiter has been used by over 800,000 businesses. And right now, you can try ZipRecruiter for free by going to ZipRecruiter.com GabFest. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash GabFest. One more time, try it for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash GabFest. President Obama delivered a piece of media criticism this week at the awarding of the Toner Prize, a prize for um, political journalism. Without saying Donald Trump's name, Obama chastised the media for, for its coverage of the coarsening I think that was his word, circus of a campaign for serving as stenographer rather than analyst and critic for, I don't, you know, I, I didn't really quite get this criticism perhaps because I don't buy it, but maybe, maybe you have a case for why he made a good uh, criticism, Emily. 
Well, I was irritated that Obama was lecturing us given how little he has really come through in terms of freedom of information and freedom of the press. But to give, to try to lay out his argument, I think his argument is that the media has been so enamored of the ratings bonanza that Donald Trump and to a lesser degree Bernie Sanders represent that they have just, you know, allowed these candidates to make these completely unrealistic promises to zigzag all over the place in Trump's case and have not held them accountable and have given them a huge amount of airtime, especially on television, in a way that has deserved democracy. That's the argument. John, you have interviewed Donald Trump a ton. You've yeah. also you've focused heavily on the presidential campaign on your national television show, Face the Nation. You know, you interview Trump a lot. Yeah. Is that a mistake? Are you I imagine oh. you've gotten good ratings for it. Well have I, you screwed the public? Are you so screwing over the public, John there's, Dickerson? There's a couple of things. Well, just first on Emily's point, and Jack our our dear friend Jack Schaefer wrote a great piece outlining all the ways in which Obama has uh, uh, clamped down on the press and not been available, both himself and his administration, and actively worked to um, to uh, make it harder for the press to do their jobs. So, um, and, and then all the ways in which he, like all previous administrations, has tried to go around uh, the press that covers him. So um, anyway, I would recommend and that was a persuasive argument. I would recommend Jack's piece, which is full of like you can just hear the rivets going in. And as he, as he built the argument, it was really it's just it's vintage, uh, vintage Jack. Now, the question of Trump. So there are two issues, I think, with the airtime that Trump gets. One is, I think, and the, and the firmest ground that the critics have is when you turn over an entire uh, network, give him an give Trump an hour of free rally uh, with, that, that you're giving him something you're not giving all the other candidates um, and or, and that you owe a responsibility either to the other candidates to do that or then you really you have to like even that out with a level of probing uh, analysis of, of Trump that matches the free hour of airtime. You know, CNN has checked, fact checked the bejesus out of Trump. And, you know, Anderson Cooper and Jake Tapper have questioned him thoroughly on on the things he said. But the question is whether that's enough when you're giving him also an, an hour of free time. And I think there's a, a debate to be had there. I, you know, in the times I've interviewed him, there are challenges with Trump that are the, the ways in which he filibusters, the ways in which he says things that he, he says he didn't say things that he said. But from the very first time I've interviewed him, the effort was to get him to own up to the things he'd said, own up to the results of his views, probe for what he believes in a way that got past the filibustering. Now, whether I whether I did a good job or not, the entire point of the exercise was to to do what Obama was talking about. I think where where what confuses me is where I mean, clearly Obama was talking about Trump in his remarks, and other people have written about this. If you looked at a politician whose negative ratings among the general electorate were negative 44 among women, negative 39 in the general population, you could easily construct an argument that said, wow, whatever the press is doing to that guy is, I mean, they have, they have put him before the people in such a fashion that he has reached toxic and historic levels of unpopularity. Well, how did they savage him? I mean, no one is more unpopular as a frontrunner of a, of a party than than he is. But what's happening is that 
uh, Obama maybe and others are looking at his success within the Republican Party, within a sliver of the Republican Party and within a sliver of that sliver, which is the portion of the party that is least likely to listen to the mainstream press. And that is the portion of the party that's elevating Donald Trump. And they are looking at that and saying this is then a failure of the entire press industry. And then I would add just one more thing. He's been, Donald Trump has been fact-checked to a fare-thee-well from the beginning. And what I don't quite understand is how the logic works when many people know about Donald Trump, a variety of, uh, if they know things about him, the first things they probably know or that stick most prominently in their minds are the comments he made about Mexicans, which was widely covered when he announced his campaign, what he said about John McCain and his lack of heroism, what he has said about women at various different times, his ban on Muslims coming into the United States, which he has been uh, roundly criticized for by people within his own party. Those are the first things they know, all of those things. So if they still like him knowing all of those things, it seems unlikely to me that they would say, you know, sure, people are saying he's been flirting with uh, white supremacist support, but I was okay with that and I'm still going to support him. But now that you've told me that his fiscal figures don't add up in your fact check, I think I'm going to reconsider my views about his campaign. That doesn't, I don't see that how, that, how that's the case. I align myself with everything you just said. I also think if there were a presidential campaign where there was poor journalism and where journalists should be called to account, it is not the 2016 presidential campaign. It is the 2008 presidential campaign the one that President Obama benefited so generously from because people like me and others were so in the tank for him and so obviously in the tank for him. And the degree of media enthusiasm and buy-in to that campaign was extraordinary. The media, the, the media in 2016, and particularly in his coverage of Trump, Donald Trump is, an, he, Donald Trump is, a, is a bully in waging a, a campaign to harass and make the life miserable of the people covering him, lying to them constantly, haranguing and and criticizing. And the people, the journalists who are out there covering Trump are, are brave and and doing an incredibly good job given a horrible set of circumstances. They deserve credit for that, much more than Obama hearkening back to 2008 when it was like, oh, it was those were the good old days when people were, were fair. No, Obama in 2008. <laughs> the good old every, days the of good, the love fest. It was just like when everyone said nice things about you all the time and wanted you to win. So that part of... What Obama was saying really, really got to me. The idea that 2008 was somehow this paragon, this moment when political journalism worked. It wasn't. The part of this that I am fascinated by and don't understand is the role of Fox News. Fox has been in an extremely entertaining but, you know, seemingly determined fight with Trump over Megyn Kelly. And some of the most prominent right-wing radio hosts are in the Never Trump camp. And the voices in the media, the outlets that you would expect precisely the alienated from the mainstream media, Republican voters to trust, have also tried to discredit Trump. And it doesn't matter. Right. It's a more complicated picture. There's a difference. There's a split and a difference between Republicans and conservatives. And Donald Trump is I mean, it's hard to pin down exactly where he is ideologically. But there are a lot of people who are conservatives who believe in certain ideas, and they don't think that Trump believes in those same ideas, and they don't think that they can be just kind of, they don't, they think they're being snowed by him, even if he says things out loud that would seem to agree with 
their ideas. And that's why the, the abortion controversy is such a big deal, because um, they say that this is example number 58, that he doesn't actually believe the things that we all believe in. And there is a and in Fox, there is a I mean, it's, there's a variety of different opinions because you've got the sort of the news side and then the the opinion side and the news side is more probing and questioning. Then on the on the you know, on the other side, you've got Hannity, who's a very favorable favorably disposed towards Trump. And that's the difference between the kind of the, the journalists over there and the and the talk show hosts over there. And this is goes beyond obviously Fox News. It goes into the complexity of his support, which is I keep coming back to this, but um the, you know, the number one attribute that uh people said they didn't like, that conservatives said they didn't like, or grassroots people said they didn't like about their Washington politicians was that they didn't say what they believe and st- and do what they believe and stick to what they believe. Well nobody has changed their mind on important questions more than Donald Trump. And yet he is the, the you know, leader at the moment of the Republican nominating contest. So um, it's a lot more complicated than, than the easy attempts to put it into, into little boxes would, um, would suggest. All right, let's leave it there. And now let's hear from our other sponsor this week, which is Score Big. You are paying too much for tickets between all the markups, last-minute convenience charges, and the printed home fees. You end up paying courtside prices for nosebleed seats. Scorebig is here to change that. Scorebig works directly with your favorite artists and teams to get their unsold seats at unpublished prices. Only at scorebig.com can you name a ticket price and be guaranteed to pay below box office, up to 60% off. Here's what you do. Go to scorebig.com and find the event and seats you want. Then make an offer with Scorebig's Name a Ticket Price feature. You'll get an instant answer and save up to 60% on your tickets. No surprise fees, just unbeatable prices on great seats. And when you're in great seats, you actually enjoy the game or the show all the more. Next time you go see any game or show, go to ScoreBig first and see how much you can save. Go to ScoreBig.com right now, click on the microphone, enter the promo code GABFEST, and you'll save an extra $20 off your first ticket purchase. Okay, let's go to Cocktail Chatter. Emily Bazelon, what do you want to chatter about this week? Some good news for reproductive rights. The what? Food and Drug Administration. What? I what? swear. I, oh, I my know. God. <laughs> the FDA changed the labeling for the drug Mifepristone, formerly known as RU486. And what this means is that it's going to be easier and safer and just better to get medication abortions in this country. So mifepristone, you can take a higher dose, you can have more supervision from your doctor or healthcare provider, or as many abortion clinics have switched, you can take lower doses with fewer visits and have equally or even better results. And the FDA has now acknowledged this fact, which is significant in terms of changing care, but it also is more significant for states that had actually restricted abortion providers to the higher dose and the kind of older drug regimen for medication abortion. Now those laws are actually at odds with what the FDA is suggesting is perfectly safe and reasonable. And so this is the, you know, 
in my view, this is like one of the most important developments for the future of abortion in this country, because if women have a choice between a surgical procedure and a medical one, and they become more and more comfortable with the medical one and access becomes less restricted, that could really change the whole norm for our abortion. Currently, I think it's about a third of the abortions in the United States are medication abortions. And I think we can expect that to see to go up. And if you are a pro-choice person, that is a good result. All right. J.D., what's your chatter? My chatter is about something that I'm, I think I'm sure you, David, will know about, which is, and I'm sort of surprised, I hope I haven't actually talked about this on the show, but is the mammoth cheese. Do you know about the mammoth cheese? <laughs> I don't. I was about to be insulted that you were not imagining I would know, but I'm no <laughs> longer insulted. <laughs> um, the mammoth cheese is something that Atlas Obscura has written about. All right. Yeah. Good so, so there you go. The mammoth cheese essentially was... This gargantuan four foot by 15 inch wheel of cheese that weighed 1,234 pounds that was given to Thomas Jefferson by a, a Baptist um, uh, Reverend, yeah. ba- Baptist <laughs> Reverend Leland a bell now. Yeah. From, from Massachusetts, who basically because they were worried in, Mass- in the Northeast that Jefferson wouldn't care as much about the Northeast as he did the South, they wanted to show him that they were Republicans up there, that they weren't Federalists, that they you know, sort of had the right views and kind of give him an offering from that portion of the of the world. So they had, they created this mammoth cheese by having everybody who owned a cow in town bring a quart <laughs> of milk on a given day. And then the curd was brought together in a gargantuan cider mill. And the <laughs> Leland, Reverend Leland insisted in, to um, Jefferson that no federal cow, which is to say a, a cow owned by a Federalist farmer, was allowed to offer any milk, lest, as he said, it should leaven the whole lump with a distasteful savor. People came around to sing hymns over the enormous press that was built to create this huge four-foot-by-15-inch cheese. It was then brought to D.C. by a sleigh because it was so large. It took three weeks for it to get here. And it was also important that later in the letter sent given to Jefferson that the cheese was produced by the personal labor of freeborn farmers with the voluntary and cheerful aid of their wives and daughters without the assistance of a single slave. It's also maybe true, and I'm not sure if this is exactly the case, but that this was the first time that the adjective mammoth was used, as opposed to noun, the woolly mammoth, the adjective mammoth was used to describe something as very big. There, it, That's, that, that is cool. I, it seems too good to be true. It seems like booze coming out of the 1840 election, everybody thought that was the origin, origination of the term. It may have been the popularization of the term. But the, the more important point is that um, this cheese sat in the White House for years <laughs> And was just kind what? of served, yeah. It just served to the uh, to the uh, to the good folk uh, who came by the White House to eat with Mr. Jefferson. And I I learned about this first from a book called Affairs of Honor: National Politics in the New Republic by Joanne Freeman, which is a really neat book about just the early uh, republic. And particularly in this section, it talks about how Jefferson used his dinner tables and his parties to take in gossip and information, but also spread his views among different kinds of politicians in town. He would do things like serve water from the Mississippi River, and the mammoth cheese was a part of that, like, you know, here's a little taste from America. But um, How could it possibly have been safe for people to eat cheese for years? Well, I suppose that since uh, cheese okay. is is, yeah. is a uh, culture... But it gets 
I mean, yeah, I think about that sometimes because I am a fan of never throwing anything out of the refrigerator to the despair of the rest of my family. But at some point, it gets gross. Well, but... But, but then you, you just don't like eat the... per, It has like protective patina of mold, and then you yeah. cut that away. And right, you, you eat the what's vanilla. left. Yeah, I mean, cheese ages okay. for it but ages now... for years in cheese cellars. Right, exactly. So it was just age, aging in the you know in the. Wait, uh, so what was its final? Um, when did it go away? It's a great. I guess they just kept eating it until it disappeared. <laughs> but um, but uh, there was no ceremony for the very end of the the last bit of rind. Yeah, I guess that's right. I mean, uh, Senator William Plummer, who was a, a Federalist, ate and recorded that after eating eating the mammoth cheese, it was quote very far from being good. <laughs> um, so uh, there you go. That's the story of the mammoth cheese. All right, my chatter is about. Uh, I was tipped to by our former colleague Matt Iglesias of Vox. But he pointed to a study by Jed Kolko, who's an economist and actually former classmate of mine. Hello, Jed, at college. Um, a fascinating study about the kind of myth that American cities are growing and that everyone's moving back to American cities. And Jed looked at all the research and cut it all up and says it's very misleading. It is true that swaths of America are moving back to cities, and particularly to dense cities. It is true that rich childless, college-educated white people are doing that. And if you, in, in their, from their late 20s to their 40s, and there are more of them relatively than there used to be. But that's more than made up for that by the continued exodus of poor non-white people who are moving to the suburbs. So cities are richer because there are more people with money there, but they are less populated and less dense and in fact, the kind of this revival that we're seeing is a revival that's benefiting a very small, narrowly defined class of people. Gentrification. Gentrification, yeah. I could go into a long discussion about why I think even if this is narrow, really narrowly limited to this particular class of people, it's still good for the country. But let's not do that now. Let's save that. We should talk about that sometime because you could certainly debate that. Our interns, El Biscard Church. Our producer is Jocelyn Frank. Steve Lichtai is the executive producer of Slate Podcast. Andy Bowers, chief content officer for Panoply, the network of which we are a part. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at iTunes.com slash Panoply. Our show page is Slate.com slash GabFest, which has links to what we talked about today. Our Facebook page is Facebook.com slash GabFest. Our Twitter feed is at SlateGabFest. Our email address is GabFest at Slate.com. Please subscribe to the GabFest and iTunes. It helps us. We need more subscribers. For Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson, I'm David Plotz. Don't forget our live show in Atlanta on April 27th. Slate.com slash live for tickets. Bye-bye. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, We've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice. 
all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. <laughs> 